Okay. Hey, how you doing? My name is Sean McDaniel, and I'm on the line with Stephen Graham Jones, author of Stephen. You have 22, 23 published works. Yep. Right around what do there. you have out yeah. there? Man, I'm probably okay. confused between 20, 22 and 23, but, yeah. Okay, well, I'm about, if you have 22 published books, I'm about 21 behind. All right. I am the author yeah. of, I just got uh, Criminal Zoo published out of Rare Bird Press with Tyson Cornell and uh, Pat Walsh. And I am from, I grew up, I was born in, I grew up, in a little town called Hobbs, New Mexico, and I now reside in Billings, Montana. So I've been around a little bit here and there. And yeah, looking at your bio, yeah. see, it looks like you've been around too, Stephen. So you uh, you see you're born in West Texas. Where in West Texas? Midland, Texas. Okay. Yeah. In Criminal Zoo, in my novel Criminal Zoo, I, I mentioned Midland, Texas. I've spent a lot of time down there. So tell me yeah. about yourself, Stephen. Man, I feel like you say I was born and raised, you know, I was born in Midland and lived all over Texas growing up. Um, just seems like we were moving all the time. Big Springs, uh, Greenwood, Stanton, on down to Austin for a bit, Corpus Christi. And I think one year, when I was 17, I lived up in Colorado Springs, but came back to Texas, of course. And then for, and I moved over to Denton, Texas, right above Dallas, after I got my um, undergraduate degree at Texas Tech. And I went to North Texas for a couple of years, and then I went off to Florida State University for a couple of years and did my PhD. And which, and for when I was writing my my dissertation, I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, because I had another Florida. And after that, I came back to Lubbock, man, and I was there till 2008. So I moved up here to Colorado, to Boulder. Well, I must tell you, I'm a huge Red Raiders fan. Texas Tech. <laughs> you know, coming from Hobbs, we're about 100 miles west of Lubbock. So anytime we wanted to see anything that looked like a city, we'd go over to Lubbock, or we'd drop down into uh, Midland, Odessa. And, uh, you know... A lot of the basketball players, Hobbs High, the mighty Hobbs Eagles, you know, basketball and football, you know, sports was big down there. The goal was mm -hmm. to, you know, see if you could go play for Texas Tech. So oh, definitely yeah. a fan of, of the Red Raiders. Yeah, and, we, uh, my we book, used to play it. Yeah. What's oh, that? Man, I, think, I, think we used to, I think we used to go to Hobbs to play a basketball tournament in high school, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, we would play. We played Lubbock Monterey. We played Midland Lee. I was never yeah. very good at basketball, but I played football. So we did. Uh, we we crossed the state line. Now Hobbs is about three miles from the New Mexico Texas state line. So uh, we did. We spent a lot of time in uh, your old stomping grounds. I went into West Texas quite a bit. I could walk out of my front door and walk to the state line. So I'm, that's very cool that you're from that area. The setting of my yeah. book, Criminal Zoo, the setting of Criminal Zoo takes place in a fictitious town, Clemensville. It's in West Texas, and it is in that Midland area. Yeah, you no, know, they yeah, say right. The first. Yeah, and they, no, they say right what you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
and you know it too. I read, I read the first bit of that this morning, and you and a lot of people who try to write West Texas, they're really just doing what feels like Southern California or something. But um, reading your stuff, it felt like you knew the area. You know, it's nice. It's always nice to fall into somebody's story that actually knows the texture of the landscape. You know. Yeah, growing up down there, like I mentioned in the book, you know, the, the tallest structure, as far as the eye can see, is a pump jack. You know, oh, pump definitely. jacks to, everywhere. We, yeah. yeah, we used to go ride those, too, on Friday and Saturday nights, man. Somehow, somehow you would ride them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I never got to ride one, so you had to climb the fence to get to them, though. But I guess if you can ride a pump jack, you can definitely climb the fence around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and most of us knew how to how to turn them on and off. So you could turn it off and then climb up and then have somebody turn it on, and you're up there riding it. You know. Uh, now you're creating quite a visual. That's fantastic. <laughs> I never, I never thought about anyone doing that. Yeah. So you grew up in West Texas. You spent like junior high, high school era there. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Even you were talking about Midland Lee. I went to Midland Lee for, I don't know, half a semester or half a year or something like that. And, um, yeah, no, that's where I grew up. I grew up on um, one side of my family farmed, farmed and the other ranched. And so I would go back and forth from working off a horse and working on a tractor or working at the end of a hoe, you know. And in between, I would always be working construction with somebody, hanging tile or doing drywall or blowing ceilings and all that stuff, you know. So going to school in Midland Lee, surely you grew up hating Odessa Permian. <laughs> um, I, man, I, 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 you know, really, when you grow up in Midland, you just kind of hate Odessa in general because you you never go to you never go to Odessa unless you're with a big pack of people. You know, you probably get up anyways and you give you a big pack pack of people because the the guys from Odessa were always tough, you know. So if I were I read an article years ago in the 70s, I believe, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, Odessa was the murder capital of the world, of the U.S. per capita in the late 70s. Is that correct? Maybe when the uh, Permian Basin was booming? Yeah, I think that's right. That's what we always heard. What we always heard was at the same time that Odessa was the murder capital of the world, Midland was the highest income per capita in the world, you know, because of all the really? people. Yeah. yeah. Now, see, up here in Billings, we have the Balkan Basin, and that boom, mm-hmm. it's crested right now, but it's funny watching the last five years around here was like watching the 80s in Hobbs in that yeah. area with the Permian Basin booming. Now the Balkan Basin, you know, 40 years later up here is booming. It's pretty interesting watching the, the colorful characters, we'll say, that they bring into the area. Oh, man, for sure. I remember after that first boom, in the, after the boom went over in the early 80s, we, 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 we'd always go as kids, we'd go out and um, hunt rattlesnakes, you know, and we'd bag them up and go to town and sell them by the pound. But walking through the pastures out there, you'd always find find stuff like um, like five thousand dollar tanning beds and, and, and hot tubs and, and stuff that people bought during the boom but then once it collapsed they couldn't pay for it so they just trucked it out to the pasture and dump it, you know? And so they couldn't get caught that is either. crazy. So pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. I can believe that. You know, as you talk about going yeah. out hunting rattlesnakes, we used to I have uh, an aunt and uncle that lived in Amarello. 
So we uh-huh. would go, I'd go out and visit them for a week at a time. And I called it snaking. We'd go, instead of going fishing, we'd go snaking. Mm-hmm. We'd go mm-hmm. snaking and looking for rattlesnakes, my uncle and I. And they were, you know, the Western Diamondback, there were plenty of those yeah. out there. We had a lot of luck snaking. Oh, man. Yeah, man, they're everywhere. Well, we even, once I even found a couple of, um, what somebody told me were sand rattles, sand rattlesnakes, which I'd never seen, but they had these really pretty pink kind of, belly with a kind of a design to them I, like just look like a normal diamondback from the top but you flip it over and it's pink on the bottom it's really pretty oh wow okay i don't think i saw any of those yeah oh one of, one of my friends too one one of my friends he he bought himself a rabbit call once he was because he was going to call in coyotes and um yeah. he went out into a pasture he went into a pasture and sat on the bed of his truck on the tailgate and he started blowing on that rabbit call he blew on it for about 10 15 minutes not a single coyote came up, and he thought, man, this is a bust. This ain't no good. And then he set, he started to step down from his truck, and the whole the whole ground all around his truck was just um, crawling with rattlesnakes. He called up all the rattlesnakes, man. Okay. Now, that'd be kind of yeah. uh, wild to step off your truck and have a bunch of rattlesnakes nearby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, Stephen, I, got, I have some questions for you about uh, – I just got done reading Leadfeather a bit ago. And uh, yeah. first and foremost, bravo, Stephen. That is, I would have to say that's one of the most complex reads. I've, I mean, as far as the writing style, and as I research it, you know, terms come to, uh, if you look up, you know, information on the Internet about this style of the book, you know, I'm hearing about, you know, nonlinear narrative, uh, experimental fiction. So when I first started reading Leadfeather, it's a first-person narrative, but it took me a little while to realize, you know, obviously the story itself, our protagonist is Dobie Saxon, sharing the same soul with uh, Francis, is it Dallapier? Dallapier? Yeah, yeah, Dallapier, yeah. Okay, so the experimental fiction. Now, the the first-person narrative you're jumping in each chapter, you're jumping into a different narrator's head. And uh, in the beginning, so the the complexity of the read, it took me a little while to really kind of get my bearing. So is Mm -hmm. that what you're calling experimental fiction? How would you define experimental fiction? You know, um, yeah, I mean, I guess people do call that one experimental. I, I prefer, I prefer the term innovative myself. Like, this isn't very innovative. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian Evanson, you know the the writer. He says that um, he kind of resists the term experimental because it experimental suggests that you don't know what you're doing, whereas innovative okay. Okay. means innovative means that you're trying something new. You know, but I think, but um, but whatever you call it, yeah, it's weird. You know, it's not like normal for sure. And um, and the chapter where it is hopping from head to head looking at that w, a w saxon kind of walking past then i wrote that first chapter probably six times back to try different angles like third person second person first person and different distances and like present tense past tense i tried everything i could figure and the only way i could ever get to work was if i looked out of a series of eyes you know and um and yeah that, but that novel structurally it's um very i don't know very like I mean, it, it keeps on back to itself you know and 
it was real hard for me to conceptualize, for me to keep conceptualizing my head as I wrote the book. And I told myself I was never going to do that again because it melted my brain. I'd done it once before with another novel, The Bird Is Gone. And I told myself and when I wrote this in, what, 06, that I'm never going to do it again. But now I just did it again. I just wrote a novel. I finished it at Christmas. And um, it's pretty, it's got, it's kind of a novel. It's a narrative that hooks back into itself in a similar fashion, I guess. Yes, it's, 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 uh, I don't know why, I don't know why I do that, really, but I do that, yeah. Well, I got one word for you, brilliant. It's brilliant. It took me a little while to get into it, and once I understood that we are looking at, you know, you're telling the story about Dolby Saxon, and you're telling it not through him, you're telling it through everyone who watched him, everyone who observed him, and it's powerfully done. You know, at Thank first, you. I was... I was a little mad at you at first, thinking, now, why can't I figure out who I am and where I am? But then once I got your, yeah. you know, your flow, and I got into it about 30 pages in, I realized, you know, how your writing style was, and it's it's fascinating. You know, I've oh, read a couple uh, of books. That, a couple of books that really stick out in my mind would be uh, Craig Clevenger's Contortionist Handbook, and I see that you yeah. share a fan base with him, which now I understand why. Yeah. You know, with Contortionist Handbook, it really, it it stayed in my mind long after I put the book away. It resonates. You know, Requiem for mm-hmm. a Dream by Hubert Selby. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Ken Casey. You know, Chief Bromden yeah. being the narrator of that. I tell you, Stephen, brilliant work following through. And, you know, being up in Billings, we're bordering on the Crow Indian Reservation. But I did spend some time up in Haver. You know, your book is based around Browning and Haver. And, uh, Uh you know, you talk about Great Falls. And you mentioned in the book, you know, Browning, Haver, Butte, Great Falls, Kalispell. So these are places that I go to a lot. My son played football in Haver at MSU Northern. So I went up to Haver quite a bit and... uh, you know, your, your description of everything, you're writing about the places that I go. And uh, yeah. my your your vision into the Blackfeet Nation. Now, so you are a member of the Blackfeet tribe. I am. I am. Okay. So, but you were born in West Texas. Uh, so how much yep. time did you spend in Montana? Man, growing up, I didn't ever go to the reservation until I was, I think, 12 years old, maybe. Went up there with my dad and hung out for a while. And ever since I was 12, I've been going up probably every, if not summer, every fall. I like to go hunt around November or so. But I don't think I've been up now for, maybe it's been a couple of years, I guess. I keep when you on, go like, hunting. You uh, well, I usually, I mean, we're after elk. We got tagged for mule deer, sometimes for whitetail, if that's open, too. Yeah. Where do you go? Oh, where? On the, just on the, on the Blackfeet Reservation, just around the okay. place that we can. They have, it, they have it all zoned up, you know, and you can go to different places at different times. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was really insightful, the, the view you gave me into the Blackfeet tradition, the culture, and you know, you, you had a couple of lines in your book that really, you know, you got a line, sad things happen everywhere. The choice you have to make going through life is if you want to focus on them or not. You know, you got some real powerful lines. I really like that line, and it really tells you, you. you're exactly right. 
and growing up in uh, your culture, you know, my wife works in the hospital here at St. V's. She sees tragedy all the time, and she sees a lot of times it is the Crow Indian uh, tribe. You know, you have with accidents, with, with uh, you have a lot of tragedy that happens on the reservations. You talk about another line you have is some Indians don't know how to die, really. You know, it's mm-hmm. so powerful. And the stuff that we see here, it really brings it home. You really gave me a view of, you know, what it would be like to grow up, to grow up as uh, a member of the Blackfeet Nation. It's it's well done. Very impressive. Thank you very much. And the way you did it, you brought me in a story. And the way you seamlessly, I really like how you would be in one chapter, you know, Francis is writing letters to Claire, and then all of a sudden you seamlessly advance me to the next chapter where I'm back into Dobie Saxon's, you know, present day. And your ability to go back and forth from 1883 to to modern times seamlessly without having to explain to me what you just did, you know, you, I think that you, you took on a hell of a challenge in trying to get the reader to follow what you wanted the reader, where you wanted to be. But I think you pulled it off. Well done. Man, thank you. I'm impressed. Thank you so much. You know, it Man, really makes me, it makes me understand that when you read Criminal Zoo, Criminal mm-hmm. Zoo is a first person narrative. Mm-hmm. It is written through the eyes of Samuel Bradbury. Now, if you think about it, Samuel, now, I like that uh, uh, Francis later on became Sam. I like that he mm-hmm. he turned into Sam. I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, <laughs> my protagonist is Samuel. And uh, yeah. I see that you have a family member named Sam. I read your, your acknowledgments in the back. Now, who was yeah. Sam in your yeah. family? Was that an uncle? He was my... He was my mom's father, my mother's dad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. with, uh, I like the Samuel or the Sam. I like how, yeah. and like uh, Earl two jobs. I, you know, I like yeah. the, the characters you had your now Mallory Saint. So Dobie's mom, uh-huh. Mallory Saint. I uh-huh. think that's a really clever name because are you pulling off? Like you mentioned the French word Mallory meaning ill fortune or bad luck. So you name her Mallory Saint. You know, you have a, a nice dichotomy, a nice contrast. Ill fortune, bad luck, and saint makes me think of, obviously, a saintly individual. Was that intentional? You know, I can I can try to claim it, but um, to tell you the truth, the reason I named her Mallory in the first place was that as a kid I was in love with... Um, Alex's big sister on Family Ties, and her name was Mallory. Oh, I beautiful. Remember I remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember Mallory. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, listen, okay. my, two loves of the 80s, my, my two loves of the 80s were Mallory and then Joe from Facts of Life, man. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, I watch those shows, too. I got you by yeah, a few man. years, but not too many. I, I watch, I grew up on those shows as well. Yeah. So have you have you 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 picked up Criminal Zoo? You're starting to read it? Yes, I have. Just this morning, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's happening, man. It's I like I like the I like the well, number one, as I said, I like the setting, you know, the West Texas setting, and I like the violence too. You know, it's, it it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't flinch. 
it's not it's not the Disney version, but I see you know you writing <laughs> yeah. horror as well, you know with yeah. I don't know that uh, as far as genre, I don't know that we can call it so much horror. Uh, uh-huh. You now you're a professor of writing at uh, Colorado, right? University of Colorado. I am. Yeah. I would love, absolutely love, when you're done a critique. Will you? You'd be. You'd <laughs> honor me to give me a critique of my book. Yeah, yeah. It would mean a lot to me coming from you. All right, man. But you know that book was inspired. The genesis of Criminal Zoo comes from all the way back. You know, you talk about Lead Feather, where you came across the uh, the reference work. Yeah. Uh, the references with the the government and Indian management in the mm-hmm. 1800s. You know, in 2005, I read an article, headlined prosecutors state man killed two girls out of rage. There was a man, still is a man, by the name of Jerry Hobbs. Interesting name, as I'm from Hobbs. Jerry Hobbs, in 2005, was convicted of stabbing to death his eight-year-old daughter and her nine-year-old friend. Uh-huh. And there was a picture of him in the paper. And I had a client one morning, Dr. Cindy Kennedy. Dr. Cindy Kennedy and I were sitting, getting ready for a training session. By day, I'm a mild-mannered personal trainer. You know, uh-huh. by night, I open up the laptop and write stories to try to give you <laughs> nightmares. But we looked at this guy's picture in the paper, and, you know, I said, lock me up in a room with this man. Put me in a room with this man, lock the door, come back an hour later, and let's see uh, who's still standing. I tell this guy, Jerry Hobbs, hey, I'm not an eight-year-old girl. What can you do to me? I was so enraged. And uh, he had just been released recent before that from prison. So, huh. it, you know, it made me think our system isn't working our system to me you know we lock up these predators they do a, a portion of their time and then we release them and you know this is my opinion only but i don't think we can i don't think we can fix them i don't think we can rehabilitate these people i feel that if you are wired to molest and murder children i don't think that you are repairable So I decided I'm going to come up with a new concept. You know, Dr. Kennedy, Cindy, she said, yeah, you know, there should be a place where you could go do something like this. And we could even, she came up with a name. She said, we can call it, we'd name it the criminal zoo. And that resonated for two years, for two years. That just, just haunted me. So I started writing criminal zoo. I wrote criminal zoo in the initial phases in 2007. You know, it took me, four months to write the manuscript and it took me about nine years to get it right. You know, I'm mm-hmm. sure you know how that is. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so this guy, Jerry Hobbs and his, you know, the murder of the two children, my publisher, Pat Walsh from Defenestration Press was out here in Billings uh, about a year or so ago. And we were just kind of wrapping up all the details. And he asked me whatever happened with this Jerry Hobbs. So I looked mm-hmm. him up and uh, to Pat Walsh's delight, it turns out that Jerry Hobbs, the, the inspiration for Criminals, is such a, I suppose you could call it a disturbing novel. This guy turned out to be innocent. 
he was exonerated. Oh. He had DNA oh. exoneration. So my whole premise for this book was uh, written on a, a about a, inspired by an innocent man. Pat Walsh thought oh. that was the funniest thing in the world. But oh. you know, for for the people that aren't innocent, you know, you see horrific headlines, and uh, you just what you don't know what to do with these people. Well, so criminals is kind of an outside the box way of looking at just a whole new, we'll call it old West uh, justice system where, you know, kind of like Dante's Inferno, what you do to land you in hell is done back to you. So that's the premise of the book. That's what you're about to get into when you tour the zoo. All right. You know, there's a early Nabokov novel, it, it might be invitation to beheading. It happens over. It happens in like a made up republic, um, you know, over by Croatia or somewhere like that. And I think, I think, and um, if I remember correctly, in that in that novel, you can pay a price and go into a room with um, a child and beat that child. And if it's making fun of the political system, but um. It's a the book is really the the story kind of stands on its head when it turns out one of the one of the men paying for that experience or whatever is going into a room and beating his own son who has gotten kind of apprehended into that abducted into that system and it's yeah it's really uncomfortable as as fiction should be I think it should it, it should always be uncomfortable it should make you question what you would do in that situation you know. Well, that is definitely what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to make you question, what would you do to protect the people you love? If someone murdered a loved one and you had an opportunity to go visit that person in a room, you had an Mm -hmm. opportunity to exact your revenge upon them, I make you question in criminal zoo, I make you question just how far would you go? Yeah, that's a good question to ask, too. You know, Max Max Brooks, World War Z... The way there's an extra chapter to it that um, isn't in the, it's not in the novel. I forget where it got published in a zombie anthology, if I remember correctly. Maybe I forget which one. But um, in that in that chapter that he left out, it's a similar setup. You you pay fifty dollars or whatever to go into a room with someone, and what you're doing, the person who is strapped to the chair in that room, is a zombie who has been made up to look like one of your lost who has become a zombie. And so you go into that room and kill that zombie and you get a sense of closure. Like, um, Oh, my brother, now my brother is gone. I can mourn him, you know, because for most of the people who, who, who lost people in the zombie plague, they don't know what happened to them at all. But, but this gives them closure. I think the name of that chapter is closure limited even. Um, but it's, it's pretty weird too. It makes you, Makes you wonder about what you're doing, you know. Well, I like how you said fiction should make you uncomfortable. Yeah. I like that a lot. Now, so you being far, far, far ahead of me, you are eons ahead of me in the the literary world. You know, what advice can you give me? I'm a a new writer. I'm I'm just mm-hmm. getting going. You have been. Mm-hmm. You're established. You're seasoned. What advice do you have for me to help me progress you know, my writing career? I think the best advice I have 
I mean, that's specifically for all people who are writing is always be writing the new thing. I see way too many writers who, um, they get a book into production with a press and it'll take a, you know, a year, year and a half before that book to hit the shelf. And, and they, they spend that year, year and a half just waiting for that book. And what you always do is as soon as you turn a manuscript in, you start on the next thing. And that's actually way you keep stuff showing up on the shelf. And that's the way you keep yourself writing, you know, because if people take a year off, it's kind of hard to get back into the flow of it, into the dailiness of it, you know, but yeah, so that's my best advice for people is always be writing. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that. So now you are, are you with Rare Bird Books now? Am I, am I what? With Rare Bird Books? No. You have no, a book I'm coming out with? No, no, I don't. No, I mean, I've, I've worked with Tyson before. Um, okay, maybe, okay, so that's the connection well, here. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know Pat as well. So yeah, I've worked with Pat too. Okay. I think at two different publishers. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? They have been amazing for me. They have oh, yeah. just absolutely. Yeah. Tyson and Pat have bent over backwards. You know, Pat and I have been working on Criminal Zoo. This coming March will be four years ago that he called me and said we are publishing Criminal Zoo. Mm-hmm. That was four years ago. So he has hung in there. He stuck with me. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. those two, I just right now like to a recorded thank you to Pat Walsh and Tyson Cornell of Defenestration Press and Rare Bird Books. Those guys are great. So, uh, you know, my experience with them is fantastic. What did Tyson work with you on? He helped me with the marketing and publicity for a novel I did in 2012, Growing Up Dead in Texas. And he threw a, what did he do? He threw a absinthe party for me down in New Orleans. It was pretty fun and did a lot of other stuff as well. And Pat, I worked with him, man, this has been 12 years ago, maybe, when he was with McAdam Cage. And then I worked with him again at MP Publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, when Pat was with MP Publishing when he first came across Criminal Zoo. Yeah. So that was yeah. a while back. Yeah. So, you know, your next book, you have a book coming out, or you have a book that just came out called Mongrels. I do, yeah. Yep. Okay, so I see that we share an affinity for werewolves. <laughs> Good. So I'm definitely... Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go pick up Mongrels. That's my next read. So have you read, I also grabbed a book, The Last Werewolf by Glenn Duncan. Have you read that one? Yeah, I have read it. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's, Glenn Duncan's a good writer. Yeah. A good friend of mine, uh, DJ Green, he'll be listening to this podcast. So a shout out to you, DJ. DJ turned me on to The Last Werewolf with Glenn Duncan. So, I'm going to read that, and uh, I see that Mongrels has a bit of a shapeshifter uh, a theme mm-hmm. to it. So I got to ask you, I got to ask you right now, your favorite werewolf movie? My favorite werewolf movie is going to be Ginger Snaps, I think. Yeah, I love Ginger Snaps, man. The second okay. would be The Howling. I love The Howling. The Howling was my first werewolf movie I saw. Maybe my first. No, it wasn't my first horror movie. It was right around my first. But um, I watched Howling so many times in the 80s. But um, Ginger Snaps, man, I love Ginger Snaps from, what, 2000, I guess? 
Yeah. Ginger Snaps. You know, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think you'll like it, man. It's solid. And it's called Ginger Snaps? It is. like the cookies, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I'm going to go check that out. You know, I'd have to yeah. say my favorite word, like you're talking back in the, the 80s, man, yeah. American Werewolf in London. Oh, no, it's amazing, huh? Yeah. I loved, I still love American Werewolf in London. Yeah, yeah it's solid. It's really good. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not a big vampire fan. I think that that's overdone, overused. I'm not mm-hmm. a big zombie fan. You know, I I don't like the the witches genre. Even though a couple of a season or two ago, American Horror Story. Do you watch American Horror Story? I don't. No, I've watched I watched the first season and then I think I turned my cable off or something. I don't know. I didn't get it anymore after that. Yeah. Hey, we just turned our cable off too. It was a good yeah. call. But uh, they had a series, a season called The Coven, which is about witches, you know. Hotel, uh-huh. I think, uh-huh. last year was about vampires. You know, I'm, for whatever reason, I like the werewolves. I'm not a big zombie, vampire, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. witch fan. You know, yeah. so what do you think about these, uh, the recent, like, Underworld? What do you think about those werewolf movies? I love, I've liked the Underworld movies, especially number three, The Rise of the Lycans. I haven't seen this one that just came to the theaters on Friday yet. Um, maybe I will soon. But, um, yeah, no, Werewolves are my favorite creature, too, definitely. And, you know, growing up in West Texas, it made sense to be into werewolves because, like, if I would have wanted to be a vampire, then I would be dead instantly in West Texas because there's sun everywhere, you know? But being a werewolf, yeah. I could run around and have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right. So, what what uh, your book Mongrels? Yeah. What you know, being a fan of werewolves for so long, yeah. you just wrote a. What took you so long long to write a werewolf book? I kept waiting to be good enough, man. I, the I, the second no, the third novel I ever wrote called it was called Bloodlines. It was a werewolf novel in 1999, but I didn't send it out. I didn't think it was good enough. It wasn't doing the werewolf justice, and so then I wrote. 20 more books in between and I finally started thinking maybe I could fake my way into being good enough to write a werewolf novel because I respect the werewolf so much I, I wouldn't let myself touch it until I thought I had all the craft in place you know well it looks like I have a bunch of books to read a bunch of books to catch up with you uh, I enjoy your <laughs> writing I enjoy your style it's deep your writing is complex yeah. it's deep and you know, it's it definitely it gives me. I'm reading a lot now outside my genre. You know, I'm I uh-huh. am born and raised on Stephen King, Dean Koontz. Yeah. Uh, I love Douglas Preston, Lincoln Child, F. Paul Wilson. Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Crichton, mm-hmm. Thomas Harris, all those guys. Mm-hmm. William Peter Blatty, the uh, the Exorcist. I love yeah. those guys. But through uh, Rare Bird, you know, I'm getting some. Uh, Outside influence, you know, just got done with a Katie Arnaldi book, uh, S.W. Loudon, you know, Stephen Stein, Burt Weisbord. So I'm starting to get into, you know, they say read outside your genre so you can expand your horizons. Well, I had trouble mm-hmm. with that. I, I love Stephen King. My favorite Stephen mm-hmm. King book just happens to be my favorite book ever, It. I love, yeah, I love It. it. Yeah, you know, Dean Koontz, Watchers, I love that yeah. book. Yeah. 
relic yeah. and reliquaries, Douglas Press oh, and Lincoln man. Child. I mean, I yeah, love these books. So, so I'm getting yeah. to uh, read now. I'm starting to read a little bit more outside the genre. And, you know, Let's Other was a fantastic experience for me because it stretched me. It stretched me cerebrally. You stretched mm-hmm. my mind. You made my mind grow on this one. I, I really had to, uh, to get into the flow and to appreciate the writing and how, how deep and how complex the story was. And uh, I thank you. I thank you for uh, thank the you. trip that you took me into Browning and uh, Haver, you know, uh, into the culture. So I'm looking forward to reading, you know, I tried to find demon theory. I'm really interested yeah. in demon theory because you have a horror story written, a fiction, a novel written in manuscript form. So what yeah. was that like, writing a novel in manuscript form mm-hmm. you know, or in uh, screenplay form? Oh, it was, was a ball. I've actually done two more novels like that since. I did um, The Last Final Girl, which is a slasher, and I did Zombie Bake Off, which is a zombie thing. Um, no, I love, that's really kind of a natural style for me. It's because um, I love reading screenplays, and it's, it's natural for me to kind of cross-pollinate or hybridize those two forms. It just it, it makes me, I think it makes me work harder because it denies me the interiority, which is kind of a special province of fiction. I just have to do everything on the surface, which is really not easy, of course, but it's so rewarding and fun. Okay, I converted. I adapted one of my books yet to be published into a screenplay, mm-hmm. and it was definitely a, it was an exercise in uh, patience, trying to figure everything out. You know, I got a couple mm-hmm. of books to read. So at this point, I have written a screenplay, but I'm not going to call it real good just yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, so how how do I get a hold of Demon Theory? Is it still? Now, can I order it? It's a- it's out of print. That's the thing. Um, okay. I mean, you can probably find it on the on the on the used market. I would guess. I mean, it wasn't. Okay. A, it was hardback and it was hardback and paperback. And the difference in the two: the hardback has all the footnotes at the bottom of the page. The paperback has all the footnotes as in the. But other, other than that, there's just some error correction. They're pretty much the same. But I bet I bet they're still available on the used market. Um, I used to have a box of twenty of them, but over the over the last like. What, 11 years, I guess. I've managed to give them all away. Man. Okay, well, I'm going to look for it. I'm intrigued by it. Cool. Sounds just uh, cool. right up my alley. Thanks, well, man. I look forward to, I really look forward to getting to know your work better. I look forward to, you know, having you give me your thoughts on Criminal Zoo. Mm-hmm. You know, I do have another book coming out next fall. You know, the publishers tell me to be careful how much I tell about it, but it may or may not mm-hmm. have ties to Criminal Zoo. Oh, so that nice. book has been written. It still it needs to go through the editing process. And then just last week, I started another novel. So I am definitely taking you up on your advice to just always be writing. Yeah. You know, I, I love to write. And I read, you know, years and years ago, I read... Write because you love to write, not because you want to get rich. Oh, yeah. You know, in the beginning of that, when I first started writing 15 years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to become the next Stephen King. You Uh know, I thought it just kind of went in that order. 
Well, now yeah. I realize yeah. it doesn't quite work like that. You know, 15 yeah. years later, I'm finally getting a book published, and it's out. It's in mass market publication. And, uh, you know, I now, I realize, well, I realized quickly in the beginning that I love to write. Mm-hmm. You, know, you talk about the, the runner and the endorphin, the runner's high. I'm sure mm-hmm. you feel the same thing after a three-hour, four-hour writing session. I just walk away yeah. from my laptop happy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It makes me happy to write. And then yeah. learning new authors, you know, finding authors such as yourself that, again, I can only say your innovative style, it stretched my mind. It was an incredible read right. with Lead Feather. And I, I will go grab Mongrels immediately. And I'd love to stay in touch with you, and I'd love to hear from you after Crimozo. Cool, man. Well, thank you. It was great talking to you. Okay. Well, I will let you get back to your day. I know you're busy. I appreciate the time. Stephen, uh, so stay in touch, okay? Well, dude, thank you very much. Great talking, man.